Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This week on Babel, John talks with Ofeta El-Tahar about his work on hydrology and climate in the Middle East. Then, John, Will, and I discuss climate change mitigation efforts in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Professor Fatih Atahir is the Breen M. Kerr Professor of Hydrology and Climate and Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His work looks at climate change and its impact on communities and on human habitation and how they might adapt to increasingly extreme climate events with a special focus on the Middle East. Professor Atahir, thank you for joining us on Babel. You're welcome. You write about how not only is temperature going up, we're seeing increasing variability in rainfall and and potentially greater droughts, not only how that's happening broadly, but how that affects individual communities. So far, people have adapted to climate change. Do you think that communities' ability to adapt to climate change is going away? Will this process speed up so that we're going to fall behind the curve? At the global scale, I don't think the global community, the global society is doing enough to address the challenge of climate change. And I have recently written a short piece when this COVID-19 came up and suddenly you see all these governments around the world taking action, big action, quick action. Uh, I wrote a piece in which I called it the power of here and now. And I argue that the reason that action is being taken is because COVID-19 is here and its impact is now. And contrasted that to climate change, where I said climate change is about the minds of many people, is about something that's going to happen over there and then. Is this something you feel can be reversed or is it a question of arresting climate change at its current place? I think it's, it's the latter. It's, it's more taking enough action so that the impacts of climate change would be manageable for different societies, especially the more vulnerable societies around the world. And implicit in that is is the possibility that there will be large populations where climate change is unmanageable and and places will be unfit for human habitation. Um, If we continue in the current business as usual pathway, which I described earlier by that we are not taking sufficient action then those possibilities could become reality. And some of the research in my group tried to specifically highlight some of those examples with the objective of informing society, informing it enough so that would motivate, impact the policy formulation process and would basically result in action, motivate people to act and mitigate climate change. A lot of your work has focused on Southwest Asia and East Africa. You were born in the Sudan. How much of your focus is because this is is the world that you grew up knowing? And how much of it is because as you look around the world, the most profound consequences of climate change are going to be in essentially what we think of as the Middle East and the Nile Basin? I think a little bit of both. 
naturally, I am inclined to look at problems in regions of the world that I am more familiar with. Actually, it adds credibility to the work. If I, for example, deal with how climate change impacts the Nile, while I grew up just a few hundred meters from the Nile, I know I know exactly the kind of societies that live in Egypt and Sudan and, and Ethiopia. So when I work on trying to explore how climate change impacts that region, that brings a lot of credibility to the work. And I say that because it's important that our projections have the credibility and they stand the test of time so that we reinforce the trust that society would have on science and the scientific projections. One of the really interesting papers that you've written talks about the impact of climate change on Hajj, on the Muslim pilgrimage, which moves around the year with a lunar calendar. Sometimes it's in the summer. When it is in the summer, as as you've written, sometimes it just becomes intolerable for people to be outside for hours at a time, which the pilgrimage rites require. Was that a surprise to people when they saw that paper? I don't know if it's really a surprise, but it did get a lot of interest. And here is really, Hajj is a very important global event. About 2 billion Muslims, and for many of them, the life dream is to be able to perform that obligation if you can. And so you get about 2 million people coming to Mecca during the season of Hajj, and as you described it, it moves according to the lunar calendar. When it comes in winter, heat stress and climate change may not be a significant issue, but it moves such that there are times in which it comes in summer. And when it comes in summer, you have these 2 million people coming. Not only that, but many of them are elderly. A significant fraction of them are people who are elderly who cannot really withstand significant heat stress. And so what we did is we projected what kind of conditions that these people are going to experience, especially some of the rituals of Hajj, they have to be done outdoors. I mean, if Hajj was all about doing prayers inside mosques, then those could be air-conditioned, hotels are air-conditioned, but some of the most important aspects of Hajj has to be done outdoors, and that exposes this large population of people to basically natural conditions that are, if we keep in the business as usual, those natural conditions may limit the ability of people to perform Hajj or wisely the authorities in Saudi Arabia may decide to limit the number of people who could perform Hajj. And both of them would resonate with a lot of people. A lot of people around the world, that's maybe some of the most significant thing that they would hear about how climate change is going to impact their lives. And my understanding, my non-scientific understanding of what you talk about is when the wet bulb temperature is about 35 degrees centigrade. My understanding of wet bulb is that's a measurement of mugginess, that it's 100% humidity and about 90 degrees or 35 degrees Fahrenheit, so that sweating doesn't help you at all because the air is already saturated. And at some point, more than six hours of people in well-ventilated spaces start passing out. Is that accurate? Yeah, so in general, when people talk about global warming, they talk about the global temperature, which is temperature is just the regular temperature. There is another type of temperature, which we call the wet bulb temperature. And as you described it, is the degree of mugginess and its function of temperature and humidity. And so let me give you an example in the context of the Middle East. 
there is the capital of Saudi Arabia is Riyadh, Riyadh in, in the middle of the desert. Significant city in, in the Middle East is Dubai, Dubai is in the Gulf. The temperature in Riyadh is much hotter than the temperature in Dubai in general, people know that. However, the Wadbab temperature, which is has temperature and humidity in Dubai is significantly higher than in Riyadh. So the results of our research, we focus on the Wadbab temperature and not temperature. And the reason is because the Wadbab temperature has direct relationship to the physiology of the human being. And our research, by focusing on the Wadbab temperature, we identified three regions that we think are the hottest spots for global warming. The first region is the area around the Persian Gulf. The second region is the area in the Ganges Valley in northern India. And the third region is the North China Plain, which is in, in Northeast China. These three areas, even in the current climate, these are hot. If, if you ask in the current climate, which areas receive the most significant heat stress, these are the three regions. And we are projecting into the future. We did a series of three coordinated studies on these three regions in which we projected that under the business as usual scenario for these three areas, the magnitude of the above temperature would approach dangerous levels that have not been observed in the current climate. Levels in which, as you described them earlier, the ability of the body to get rid of the heat would be limited because the above temperature would be extremely high. We emphasize that if people are interested in heat stress, then the Wadbab temperature is the right variable to focus on. And so our first study that received a lot of attention was the study that showed that the cities around the Persian Gulf, places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Doha and Dahran, areas that even under the current climate, if you go and visit during summer, is quite hot in terms of the Wadbab temperature, is hot and humid. And, and actually many of the nationals of those countries, even under the current climate, they would leave during summer to spend time in the Mediterranean and in Europe. And those locations with the continuation of the trend of global warming would reach magnitudes of temperature that would be unbearable for humans. And that's the work that received significant attention. And there's been a lot of reporting about how hot things get in Iraq, in southern Iraq, especially during the summer, plus electricity outages, which mean that people lose air conditioning. Are there parts of Iraq and, and southern Iran that are as affected as the southern coast of the Gulf? Or are there aspects of the weather that make, even though it's hot, it's not as bad as it might be farther south? The humidity is the difference. Southern Iraq, the air blows into places like Baghdad, it usually blows from the desert areas. And in this scenario of looking at heat stress, Desert air is not as bad, you know, because the desert air is very hot, but it's also very dry, it's extremely dry. And so when you combine the temperature and the humidity, the Wadbab temperature for desert cities is not as high as in cities where you have both heat and humidity. And so, for example, our projections for Riyadh in, in Saudi Arabia is that Although the temperatures may approach 60 degrees centigrade, very high temperatures, the Wabab temperature will not be at dangerous levels because of the dryness. And so we humans are equipped to deal with hot and dry environments. If we have 
enough supply of water. If you keep hydrating yourself, you sweat, and the sweat evaporates, and that cools your body. That's a natural mechanism that humans operate to face heat stress. If you add the humidity to that equation, it basically interferes with the natural process by which humans are able to cope with heat stress. And that's where the significance danger, the risk to human and the risk to human life emerges. So southern Iraq is not as bad as, for example, Basra on the Gulf. Although Basra and Kuwait, because they have the wind, the way the wind blows over places like Basra and Kuwait, they have what they call shamal wind. Shamal wind, that means it's coming from the north. And if it's coming from the north, that's coming from desert areas. And so the origin of that is really dry air. So Kuwait is not as bad as Zahran and Abu Dhabi and Doha and Dubai. Those are these, you know, and even in places like UAE, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, if you are in Abu Dhabi, it's one thing. If you move inland, places like Al Ain, you know, which is in Abu Dhabi, but it's in the middle of the desert, things are not that bad there. So, I mean, when I wrote this paper, one of the things that we mentioned, like if someone is thinking about real estate and like urban development in the long term, time scale of decades, if you want to locate a new city with growth of population, some of those inland spots may be attractive. Although we have to always say that, you know, places like UAE and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, they have the resources and they have the energy sources to be able to like afford enough uh, air conditioning that would get them through the summer. How do Middle Eastern governments respond when they see your work? Are they interested in steering it, sponsoring it, suppressing it? I mean, they're, they're clearly both producing hydrocarbons that produce greenhouse gases, and then they suffer the consequences of it. What kind of conversations do you have with Middle Eastern governments? I think there is a lot of interest. There is recognition that these are important issues for the future of the countries. Some of our research is funded by some of the countries in the region, not with a specific focus on these issues, but broadly on environmental issues. So I think that, as I said earlier, you know, some of these countries, they have mechanisms to cope with extreme heat. That's why I think the paper we did in South Asia is is maybe the most significant, Uh, not only because the people there are vulnerable, it's because also places like India and China are significant players in the climate change mitigation business. So when we wrote those papers, we argued that this should inform the policy for places like India and China, who are the fastest growing emissions are India and China, actually. Partly because they're burning coal. Yes. And also India burning coal. And coal is a big, big issue, you know, as far as accelerating climate change. But we argued that those studies that we did should give people a pause to think that the policies that they may take to limit emissions and to go more towards renewables will not only benefit the global climate for everyone, but they could also help their local population. Because eventually, the industrialization in India and you know the energy needs and so on are driven by the desire to benefit their own population and to help the economic growth in the country. And if you have some of the impacts of that leading to really harming your own population, that I think brings a different dimension to the policy debate that they have about climate change. Have you seen any direct impact of your work? Are you aware of a government changing what it does because 
had read some of your work and said, we have to take this seriously? I think the impact on policy doesn't come like directly. But for example, the paper I described about China, I mean, my students in my lab, when they first came from China, they were telling me that this gets attention in the social media in China, which is a huge social media. <laughs> you know, people talked about it and not only people, the individuals, the government. So it has impacts in that sense of like increasing awareness that there are dangers associated with climate change if people do not act. And so I think in that sense, you know, there may be impacts that's indirect. And another region that we have looked at in the Middle East and more recently is the area of the Mediterranean. And that's another, we think of the Mediterranean is really a hot spot for climate change. We think the Mediterranean could experience significant droughts. It's already experiencing significant droughts. Like, you know, there are speculation that, for example, the droughts that's in the Eastern Mediterranean may have had some impact on like, you know, the political development that happened in the last one or two decades. On the Syrian civil war. Yeah, there are speculations about that. And and some of our work showed that that's actually drought is part of a trend associated with climate change. You would expect to see more of it as the climate changes in the future. There are also significant impacts on the other side of the Mediterranean in places like Morocco and southern Spain. Significant declines in precipitation. And that has been something that we looked at. Do you see a significant source of optimism that we're going to get ahead of this, that people are going to start paying attention to this kind of work? Or does it feel like you're shouting into the wind? I think there are reasons for optimism. When you talk to young people, when I see young researchers in my group, graduate students and and their views, and they express it in, in writing, they express it in they participate in the dialogue that we have at the university. And also, you know, the activism among young people, I think you could see more significantly among young people. And some of it has to do with better education about the topic, but also some of it has to do with realization from that generation that this is really their problem. They're going to be here longer than the uh, older uh, generation. And they are going to experience some of these impacts in their own lives. So there is that pragmatic and realistic view of things. And so when I see that, I see reasons for optimism. And do you have a special interest or a special effort to target uh, young Middle Eastern populations, young Gulf populations? You have Arabic at your disposal, certainly energy use in the Gulf, partly because of climate is very, very high. And and as you know from being there, that there are some people who act indifferently to the climate impacts of of their actions. Do you have a special interest or a special effort to target young populations in the Gulf that in many ways are going to be living this future? There is some effort there. But the main avenue I am taking on this is that with every significant paper that comes out, I put a significant effort in trying not only to publish it in academic journals, but to share it more broadly, talking to journalists, uh, making simple videos, and trying to spread the word. And I think that's much, in the last 10 years, much more than what I used to do in the previous 10 years. We will have a link to your website in our show notes, so if people are interested, they should certainly look at that. It is a very rich source of information. A lot of it, as you say, extremely tangible related to the way people and societies live. 
Dr. Fatak Tahir from MIT, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. Thank you very much for inviting me and enjoy the conversation with you. Next up, John will and I talk about how governments in the Middle East are trying to mitigate the effects of climate change. So let's start with a kind of basic question. What could happen if governments in the Middle East don't act on climate change? You know, in reality, it's not just governments in the Middle East. And I thought one of the really important things that he noted is you have problems with the governments of China and India deciding they're going to still burn coal because they produce it domestically. And that creates a lot of greenhouse gases that create climate change. He pointed out, I thought quite clearly, that there are some governments that still have some ability to mitigate the effects of climate change on their populations. They can desalinate water. They have electricity for air conditioning. But there are large parts of the world where the governments can't do it, in Basra, in Iraq, in the Ganges Basin in India and in China, and you just can't have people outside. That's not about the government building infrastructure. That's about, it's not fit for human habitation. It's sort of ironic in a way that some of the countries that are responsible for producing these hydrocarbons that end up in the atmosphere, which contribute to climate change, are some of the best prepared to deal with its effects. I mean, the countries that can afford to have air conditioning everywhere to make some of these areas livable. I'm sure you both have experienced some of these really extreme heats. I remember very clearly being in Dubai in August, and it was also Ramadan. So people weren't drinking and whatnot during the day. And it was like being in an oven. It was more than 50 degrees centigrade. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, probably 120 plus. And I walked outside the hotel from a very beautifully air-conditioned hotel and was just hit by a wall of, of heat. And it's, it's the humidity that really gets you. But some of those governments are actually well-prepared to deal with it because they can afford to make indoor areas cool for at least a lot of their citizens, if not for everyone. But yeah, as you say, John, I mean, some of these areas will probably just become uninhabitable. Another area which I think Al-Fatih talks about in his research is Yemen, and the, especially the coastal areas, places like Al-Hudaydah and, and Aden. Some of these areas, we're likely to see people dying prematurely, especially the weaker people, elderly, young people, because our bodies struggle to deal with those levels of heat. I remember when I was in Yemen in the early 90s, I stayed one night in a hammock in a lodging that didn't have any air conditioning. And I woke up and there was an outline of white sweat around my clothing where I had sweat and the sweat had dried because at night on the Red Sea coast, it was so hot. I just kept sweating and the sweat would evaporate. What he pointed out was there comes a time when it gets so hot between the heat and the humidity, sweat doesn't help you anymore. You can't use your body's natural systems to cool you off. And that's when it becomes very, very dangerous. You both bring up an important point there of if you can afford air conditioning, that's great. But the more marginalized communities can't always afford air conditioning. Have you seen efforts to help particularly marginalized communities with the effects of climate change, are there campaigns that governments are running to 
target them? Or is there governments targeting a more widespread approach? Well, I think when we talk about marginalized groups, that's certainly a big part of it. I mean, if you think about people who are displaced, their ability to deal with some of these things is is almost non-existent. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about having uh, displaced camps being fitted with air conditioning. But it's not just marginalized groups like that, but also the types of people who have to work outside and have to spend large amounts of time outside. So that's people who work in agriculture, people who work in construction, various other types of, of activities which are outside. And for them, it's incredibly difficult. Now, there are, I think, some governments have tried to instigate mandatory sort of noon breaks and things like that, so that some of these people aren't working outside at the hottest parts of the day. But it's difficult to enforce those measures. It's also economically not in employers' interests, perhaps, to have their workers stop working for periods of the day. And in places like the Gulf, a lot of the people who are involved in these types of industries are migrant workers. And so they might have fewer legal protections to be able to demand that these kinds of rights are upheld. With your time in the region, have you encountered any particularly effective public awareness campaigns? Or are there even public awareness campaigns? There's some awareness about water. And in the Gulf in particular, water and electricity generation are different parts of the same process, but the same plants make water and electricity. And actually, in the summer, there's an excess of water because they're generating so much electricity to run the air conditioning systems. But the water awareness is new. I think the climate change awareness isn't really there, both in terms of what it means for human habitation and what it means for rising sea levels. And one of the things that that Professor Tahid was interested in is, is reaching out to more audiences and helping people understand. I think governments need to play a greater role on that as well, because for people who are 20 or 30 years old, and these are very young populations in the Middle East, this is what their future is likely to look like. I think one of the problems that governments might have with awareness campaigns is just how slowly these trends set in. I mean, we're talking about some of the implications of some of this becoming clear in perhaps a decade, but lots of it is decades from now. And I think when there are so many other really pressing issues to focus on, it's difficult to put energy behind measures to tackle sort of rising sea levels or changing temperatures or even changing patterns of precipitation um, because it feels quite far off. And I think that's a challenge for all governments around the world, not just the Middle East. It just happens that for the Middle East, some of these effects are likely to be even more acute. Thank you for joining us this week on Babel. And please tune in next week for a meze on women working in the auto industry. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.